I'll read verses 1 through 5, although uh, really verse 2 is a verse that we're going to be looking at several times this evening. And we'll look at some other supporting texts as well. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would bless Your Word and that You'd uh, once again teach us as we look at this passage and several other from, of Your Word. We, we know that Your Word gives life, that there is sanctification that comes to us as we give ourselves to the truth. Lord, as we just saw in the text, as Jonathan sought to strengthen David in God, he reminded him of God's Word, God's promises. I pray that that would happen this evening, that as we look at Your Word, we would be strengthened in our God as we consider what You've said. Give us faith. Lord, increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So we are continuing to consider this doctrine of Christian liberty. And we have spent all of our time, this is actually part seven of this, of our consideration of this paragraph so far. And up until now, we've been looking at what we've been set free from. It's all sort of been liberty from the negative or, or, or in the negative perspective. What have we been released from? Just to briefly recap, and you can look at, if you have a copy of the Confession, you can see it listed there. We've been set free, or we have liberty from the guilt of sin. God no longer deals with us as guilty or as criminals before Him. We've been set at liberty from the condemning wrath of God. We are no longer liable to any of God's wrath. His wrath is no longer looming over our heads as it is the unbeliever. We are at liberty from the rigor and curse of the law, which means we're not subject to the curses of God's law, even in spite of our many sins. We've been delivered from this present evil world, which is a reference to the thinking and the mindset of this age. It's no longer ours. The spirit of this age, as the Scriptures would say, is no longer our spirit. We no longer follow along uh, with the sons of disobedience. We've been released from that. We've been given liberty from bondage to Satan. Satan himself has no power over us, and we've been set free or at liberty from the dominion of sin. Sin has no power over us. According to Romans 6, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We've been set free from the evil of afflictions. We saw this last Lord's Day. Though we will be afflicted, rather than being to us for evil, it is for our good. The Lord uses it for good. We've been set free from the fear and sting of death, which means though we will die, we're not suffering death as a punishment for our sins. 
We've been set at liberty from the victory of the grave. Though we will die and though we will be buried, the grave cannot keep us. And we've been set free from everlasting damnation because Christ has suffered in our place. The just for the unjust. There is no wrath left for the believer. Now, we finally get to move into the positive aspect, the the freedom or liberty unto. If we went back to the very first lesson in this paragraph, we talked about the Statue of Liberty. And the idea is not merely that we, we look at the Statue of Liberty and then we run wild, but the Statue of Liberty reminds us that we have been, uh, we have been liberated from Great Britain and now we have begun our own nation. From one thing and unto another. This is, now we look at the liberty to, or the freedom that we have to do, the freedom that we have to act, something positive. I want to illustrate uh, this idea and, and hopefully sort of reveal why our thinking has to be checked a little bit on this. Uh, for many people, when they come to a general understanding or a conception of the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath, and they determine in their minds that it is biblical, and they say within themselves, I will at this point now begin to strive to obey the biblical doctrine of observing the Christian Sabbath, very often one of the first questions that they ask is, well, what can I do on Sunday? Because the whole way that the law comes to us is very often perceived in a a negative or restrictive way. Can I watch TV? Can I go to Walmart? Can I take a nap? Can my children play outside? It's all questions wondering, what can I do? What can I do? Rather than viewed from the positive aspect. Why is that? It's because we're naturally ingrained to see the law of God as restrictive. And we want to know essentially what we can still do and at the same time be found obedient. How far can I go continuing to act really the way that I acted before but still be considered within the bounds of orthodoxy or the bounds of of obedience? Now compare that, if you could imagine a young man enlisting in the military. And there he sits in the chair. He's just sat down. They've got out the Bible. They're, they're reviewing some of his paperwork. He's about to swear in. He's about to put his hand on the Bible. And he, and he begins to put it out. And then he says, well, hold on a second. Can I still watch TV? Can I still go to Walmart if I get tired? Can I take a nap uh, on the weekends if I want to go fishing? Is that going to be okay? Now, now you... The, the officer who's about to perform this swearing in would realize at that moment, this young man has no idea what he's doing. How did he get this far? He doesn't realize that at this point in his life, he's, he's, he's not signing up to ask what he can still do. He's here surrendering the questions, what can I still do? He's surrendering his rights. He's actually becoming property of the United States government. He's He's walking into an entirely new way of life where there's already plans to position officers throughout his life every day to remind him, you're not here to ask what you can still do. You're here to close your mouth and we'll tell you what you are to do. It's it's very similar when a person becomes a Christian because becoming a Christian is dying to ourselves. It's dying to an old way of life and becoming a new person. It's entrance into an entirely new sphere of existence, and becoming a Christian means surrendering, bowing to King Jesus, surrendering your rights to the crown of Christ. And this is not restrictive. This is real freedom, as we saw 
many weeks ago. The only restriction that we'll experience is, is going to be found because of the remaining corruption in us that wars against the, the law and the Word of Christ. Someday that corruption will be gone and we'll be free to enjoy what the Scriptures call the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. So we can't look at Christian freedom that way. When we, get, we, we see, okay, I've been set free from all of that. I got it. Guilt of sin, condemning wrath of God, rigor and curse of the law. I get it. I'm, I'm from all of that. Now what can I do? Even then we still begin to ask, really, what, what can I still do? What can I bring with me from my old way and still and, and get away with it, really? This is the way people tend to think. So we can't think that way. So now let's look at the confession. What, what is our liberty? I'm going to read from the beginning. I'm going to skip all of the sections that we've already referenced and jump down to where we're picking up. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists, skipping down, in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him. And then that is then qualified, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. Those last two are qualifying obedience. So essentially we could say our freedom is access to God and yielding obedience. That is the liberty that we have as Christians. Now let's unpack that. First, access to God. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their free access to God. This is by far the most significant and fundamental aspect of our Christian liberty. This is the most significant, fundamental, overarching, undergirding aspect of what it means to be a Christian. We have gained access to God. Now, when we hear that, this, this is at least me, I, I, I initially began to think of the idea of an open door policy. As if to say... Gaining access to God means that God has now pushed His door open and He says, all right, if you need me, the door's always open. You've got access to come and go as you please. Now, there is a sense in which that's sort of true. The reference that comes to my mind is Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You need help? You need grace? You have a need? Then come to the throne of grace. We do have that access to God in that way. But that access to God is actually built upon what's being addressed here. A deeper access. A more basic access idea of access. Another illustration. Think of a man that has been arrested for identity theft. And you're watching a news article or maybe you're reading the headlines. And the news story says something like this. The suspect had gained access to dozens of personal bank accounts and had spent thousands in online shopping. Now when you read that phrase that the suspect had gained access to dozens of personal bank accounts, you don't think, you know, I bet that guy was sitting at his house, minding his own business. He just happened to have a list of PIN numbers to other people's accounts. He wasn't doing anything with it. He just had them there, and somebody told on him, and he got busted. No, that's not what you think. The picture is that he was using that access to actually begin to, as the quote said, spend thousands of dollars in online shopping. The access there wasn't merely an open door policy. Here's the PIN numbers. Use them if you want to. But 
you know, that's on you. That wasn't the idea. The open door was behind him because he had already gone through it and accessed the funds. That's the picture that the Scriptures use of this access. It's not that God has merely made a way. The idea is that the believer in Christ uh, has availed himself of that way and is now in the state of access to God. And we see that in the passage that we read, Romans 5.2. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now just notice the language. Through Him, that is through Christ, we have obtained access. That phrase, have obtained, is in the perfect tense, which means it's a past completed action and the results of that continue. We've, we've got the access and we've still got it. it it's already happened. We've, we've obtained the access. And then he says we've also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Another perfect tense verb. In other words, we at some point in the, in the past came to stand in it and we still stand in it. We're not coming and going, coming to get some grace and coming to leave. We've gained the access and we're standing in the grace. To use the illustration, we're already spending the money that we've accessed. And he says, and we rejoice. A present tense verb. Right now, we are rejoicing because of the access we've already obtained and are dwelling in. So through Christ, we already have obtained or gained access to God. We're already making use of the access. Several commentators pointed out that this word access could be, uh, could be translated introduced or an introduction. We've gained an introduction. We're not standing out in the foyer waiting on God's uh, present meeting to finish so that we can then come into His office. No, we've already been introduced and we've moved into the state of access with God. Now, to understand this better, we have to contrast it with what our previous state was in Adam before we were Christians. And if you're not a Christian, this is where you still are. Remember that Adam was a part of or in covenant with God, a covenant we typically call the covenant of works, because he broke that covenant. The curse of breaking that covenant was death. He did not immediately physically die, but he was immediately separated from God. He was cut off from God. That illustrated by their being cast out of Eden. That was a picture. You've been cut off from God. Now, was God somehow relegated to the physical location of Eden so that when Adam got outside of the garden, now he's further away from the divine essence uh, uh, geographically than he was before? No. God is omnipresent. God, I should say, all of God is in all places at all times. God is immobile. He can't move. He's already there. All of God is already everywhere. He, he is omnipresent. So what then did it mean to be thrown out of Eden or cut off from God? It's to be cut off from the direct flow of God's special spiritual life-giving blessings like a branch severed from the vine. You don't have the flow of spiritual 
life. Now I say spiritual life because natural men still receive their physical life from God. They are, they are kept and sustained living by God. God still makes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. The problem here is that sin had driven a wedge between us and the, the spiritual life-giving blessings of God. We, we read this yesterday in, our, in the men's Bible study, Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is us, prior to our salvation, without God in the world. That doesn't mean that we, we, we got into a place where God was nowhere to be found, because God is everywhere. The idea is that we were not in the realm of God's special, saving, covenant blessings. We didn't have that, that covenant condescension and relationship with God. We didn't have the promises of God. We didn't have the hope of God. These are all salvific blessings that come to the people of God. That's where we were prior to being saved. We had no access to God. So then the access would be introduction into the realm of the special salvific blessings of God, which are in essence God Himself. When you become a Christian, you become a partaker of all that God is to His people. Now, when I say realm, you're introduced into the realm of His special salvific blessings. This doesn't mean that you come into an area where you may or may not participate in the activities. It's not like you showed up late for a birthday party and they're already doing the Cupid Shuffle and so you say, well, I'll just sit this one out. I'm not going to participate. I'm in the realm of the party, but I'm not going to... That's not the idea here. The, the realm is within the distinct sphere of God's working. You've come into that. It, this access assumes that you've already begun to receive the blessings. Again, Romans 5, 2, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, it's through Christ we've gained access into this grace. What is grace? Grace is the effectual working power of God producing God-likeness in all of life. It comes to us by the Spirit of God. Spirit indwelling is what brings us into the realm of accessing God and all that He is. Ephesians 2.18, for through Him we both have access, both being Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Romans 5.2, through Christ we've, had, we've gained access by faith into this grace here in one Spirit. That is God the Holy Spirit. What is God the Holy Spirit to the believer? He comes in and indwells us, uniting us to Christ. So that through the indwelling of the Spirit, who is God Himself, we've already entered into the sphere of spiritual blessings. When the Spirit comes to indwell a believer, He's not inactive. The Spirit as God, is always active. There's no potential in God. He's always working, always producing. When we come into that realm of being indwelt by the Spirit, we're brought into access to God, and the Spirit begins to give the blessings. The Spirit Himself is the blessing. So to have 
liberty of access to God doesn't simply mean that God's door is always open and we can go to Him whenever we need Him. That's true, but that's rooted in this deeper and more fundamental reality of salvation, which is that through faith, taking hold of Christ and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit of God, taking residence in us, we have already been escorted into the sphere of God's overflowing graces and blessings. To use the language of John 15, we've been connected to the vine. And immediately being connected to the vine, the, the life source, the blessings, begin to flow to us. That's the access. We've gotten to God. The foundation of all of our blessedness and communion with God is God Himself in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the moment of first faith, we are made partakers of the divine nature and we are brought into the orbit of the inter-Trinitarian fellowship and plugged directly into the flow of blessings which are in God. That's the access we have. You read John 14. I and the Father will come and we will make our dwelling with Him. Think about what that means. We have, it's, it's the images that God has coming down to condescend, but when you begin to think of it, it's almost like we've been brought up into this inter-Trinitarian fellowship. How? Through the indwelling Spirit of God. We've gained access to that. We've gotten God. So that's, that's the chief liberty. We've liberty, or we have the liberty of the access to God. Secondly, then, there is obedience to God. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their yielding obedience unto Him. Now, this is the statement that to an unregenerate man sounds most absurd. As Christians, we would say, we've been set free. We are at liberty to obey God. That sounds crazy to a lost person. We who have been raised from death to life in Christ have the liberty, the freedom, to yield obedience to God. To yield means to produce, to give, to offer up. It implies a willingness. It implies an offering of obedience freely. I'm free to freely gift my obedience. Offer it up. Produce it willingly. The Christian has been set free to offer obedience to God. The Christian can say with Paul in Romans 7:22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being with a straight face. I delight in the law of God. Now remember the law of God is is a revelation of who God is. So any conformity to the law of God is conformity to God himself. Because the believer delights in God, he therefore delights in obeying God because he's becoming conformed to the image of God. Now again, we have to be reminded of what our condition was prior to Christ. These are all liberties which Christ hath purchased under the gospel for believers, not for the lost person. Prior to coming to Christ, every intention of the thoughts of my heart was only evil continually. And it's the same for you. Prior to coming to Christ, I was not righteous, I did not understand, and I did not seek for God. And the same is true for you, Romans 3, 10, and 11. 
The mind that is set on the flesh, Romans 8, 7, 8, is hostile to God or enmity with God. That was your mind. Apart from Christ, your mind, it was enmity with God. Why? It does not submit to God's law. That's your state by nature. I don't want to submit. I will not submit. Indeed, it cannot. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We, by nature, have a natural hostility toward God. We don't see Him as lovely. We, by nature, have a a natural animosity toward obedience. We don't want to obey God's law, naturally. Even in some cases where God's law or God's ways prove themselves to be good to an unregenerate man, very often he will work to try to convince himself and other people that it was his idea and not God's. Or he'll, he'll twist it just enough that it becomes his idea and not God's. Why? Because ultimately his, his animosity toward obedience to the law of God is rooted in his disdain, his hostility toward God himself. We've talked before about Chick-fil-A. You know, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, right? We love Chick-fil-A. They're, they're Christians. They're closed on Sundays. Isn't that great? They close on Sundays. Yeah, it is great. Why is it great? Well, they are not open. You mean they obey the Christian Sabbath? Oh, no, no, no. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But they're closed on Sundays. Well, why is that great? Well, because their, their, their people can go to church if they want to. Well, why would they do that? Are they obeying some sort of command? Well, no, no, this is, they just give that freedom. You see how futile this is. When men want, they see some blessedness. It is good to give your workers a break one day in seven. That, that comes from God. That's not man's idea. But the carnal man doesn't want to really admit and confess, I'm obeying God's law and then go through with it all the way. That's how carnal men are. We're, by nature, hostile to God and His law. By nature, we're rebels and enemies of God. And because of that natural enmity, we're not willing to obey God. Because of our our natural mental alienation, we see disobedience as freedom. Think of the the quintessential uh, free man, right? He's riding on his Harley, all black, tattoos, his hair's blowing in the wind, you know. He's not wearing a helmet because he's free. He's He's a free spirit. The Bible condemns that. The Bible says, restrain your spirit. A free spirit is foolish to God, but that's the way men think, you see. Here's, here's a free spirit. Here's ultimate freedom. The Scriptures say, no, freedom is being able to restrain that spirit and bring it to conformity to God. But by nature, we don't get that. We, we completely twist it. It's all because we're blinded by sin to see the goodness of God. Through Christ, however, that blindness has been taken away. And we, many of us here have experienced that blindness has been taken away. We've been given eyes to see not only the goodness of God, but the goodness of being conformed to His image through obedience to His commandments. As Jesus said, if you love Me, obey My commandments. That's real freedom. Why? Because the carnal man can't do it. Why can't he do it? Because he won't do it. He hates God and His law. So there's access to God and there's obedience to God. And now this obedience is is qualified. The the manner of our obedience is here stated. First, negatively, we are free to yield obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear. Now, slavish fear is a fear which is aroused because of negative consequences. 
And so to obey out of slavish fear would be to obey out of a fear of the negative consequences of our actions. You know, if you do this, I'm going to kill you. Okay, well, I don't want to be killed. Therefore, I will obey. That would be slavish fear. Now, that kind of obedience flows out of self-preservation, which is most often idolatry because that person is now using obedience to God as a means to serve their own self-interest. They're not coming to obey the law of God because they delight in God. They're obeying the law of God because they delight in themselves. That's slavish fear. But we've been set free to yield obedience unto Him not out of slavish fear. And the confession here references Luke chapter 1, verses 73 to 75. It points us to the oath that He, God, swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. This is a promised aspect of the salvation of God in Christ Jesus, that we would be able to serve without fear. We would be able to obey, but not out of slavish fear. Again, that's, that's absurd to the carnal man. Now this, of course, assumes the difference between this slavish kind of fear and the fear of God, which is one of the chief graces of salvation, one of the promises of the new covenant. The, the slavish fear and the, the godly fear of God cannot coexist. One replaces the other when, when someone becomes a believer. Very often, the Holy Spirit will use this slavish fear to bring someone to call upon the name of the Lord, and then that slavish fear is replaced with a godly fear, but they can't coex coexist together. So, the Christian is delivered through Christ, and he's at liberty to obey the commandments of God. And we do that not because we're, we fear wrath, not because we're afraid of hell, Again, unbelievers, they, they don't understand this. Oh, you just do that because you believe that if you don't, then your God is going to throw a lightning bolt out of the sky and strike you dead. No, actually not at all. I have no fear of that whatsoever. I obey because I love my God. I want to be like Him. Christ has removed all wrath for the saints. That's a great opportunity to explain the gospel to somebody when they bring that charge. You just do that because you believe God's going to do this. No, actually, God already emptied out His wrath upon His Son. I obey freely. Not out of slavish fear. And then positively, the manner of our obedience, yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. So there you see another division. Childlike love, willing minds. First, childlike love. The Christian has been delivered from obeying God out of a slavish fear. And is now at liberty to offer obedience to God out of a childlike love. So then we would ask, what characterizes a childlike love? What would it look like to obey out of childlike love? And those of us with little ones will, will sort of get this to an extent when our, our children, they just want to please mom and dad. And so you tell them to go do the most, the, the, the most odd thing. And they, they want to obey. They, they just run to do it. Or... They don't want to do it, but then you just start talking about it like it's really exciting and that you're, you're going to be happy for them. And all of a sudden, you know, they want to do it. Oh, okay, okay. And they, they run to it. That's, that's a childlike love that assumes the object of love, which is God. Childlike love with God as its object will produce obedience that is happy. Happy obedience. 1 John 5, 2 and, 2 and 3. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. How do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I love God? His commandments are not burdensome to me. They're joyful. I can obey and be happy. I don't obey out of mere obligation, but out of delight. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written within my heart. That's a blessing of the new covenant. That is the the affectionate governing principle of the, the inner man, the heart, is the law of God. Your law is within my heart. Therefore, to obey the law of God, to do the will of God for the Christian, gives rise to joy and happiness. It's what I'm made to do as a new creature in Christ Jesus. Happy obedience. Childlike love with God as its object will produce obedience that is hungry. These are not going to be all H's, by the way. I just couldn't do it. Happy and hungry. The Christian obeys God. And longs to obey God. He wants to obey. He desires it. The Christian feels out of touch and displaced when the will of God is clouded in their judgments. When, when a believer comes to a, a crossroads, a fork in the road, a decision, and they're not super clear about what they ought to do before God in that situation, they don't like that. They're uncomfortable. A Christian says, I need to know what God wants me to do. I need to understand what obedience would be in this situation. And and until then, they're out of touch. they're They're not delighted. They're hungry for obedience. The Christian doesn't say, well, when I get to that book of the Bible in my reading plan two years from now, then I'll consider what God has to say to me on the, the subject that's addressed there. No, a Christian is hungry. For obedience. A Christian searches out God's will in His Word. The Christian goes hunting for obedience. What, what's some area where I can offer more obedience to my God? The Christian cries out, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Let me not wander from your commandments. Teach me. Your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. That's Christian obedience. It's hungry. I want it. Show it to me. Show me where I can conform. Reveal it to me. Open it up to me. I want to obey. It's hungry. Childlike love with God as its object will produce an obedience that is not stingy. A Christian is not slow and apprehensive about their obedience. And then once they actually do begin to obey, they're only obedient in areas that are the most obvious, the most glaring, the most explicit. That's not how Christians are. They don't don't stop there. Back to Psalm 119, several references. Verse 6, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 20, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 34, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. This is obedience 
That is out of a childlike love. It's not stingy. It says, I want to obey all of your commandments at all times with my whole heart forever and ever. That's what I want to do. That's a Christian's mindset. The Christian doesn't say, well, I'll do this, but I won't do that. I won't go that far. I'll find another interpretation before I do that. I'll obey here, but not there. I'll obey on Sunday, but not Monday. Or I'll obey on Saturday, but not Sunday. I'll obey, but only outwardly. Inside, I'm really, it's just grating against my flesh to be obedient. I'll obey for a time, but then I'll move on once we get past this, this stage in our lives. That's not a Christian's attitude. We've been delivered from that legalistic way of thinking. And that's exactly what all of that is. That's legalism. That's man making up his own law and his own rules. For himself. We are at liberty. We've been set free from legalism. We are at liberty to obey God out of childlike love. The confession references Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, childlike love. Why? Because we're His children, and we obey out of that childlike love. And the second positive trait is the manner uh, second positive trait of the manner of our obedience is a willing mind. We yield obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. The mind is the inner man, the thinking and reasoning faculties of a human being. We obey out of a willing mind. The Christian, alone in his mind, nobody's around, Nobody hears it. Nobody's, nobody knows what he's thinking. All by himself. He can sit alone and he can consider God is good. His ways are perfect. His law is perfect. And in, that, in his own mind, though the war will often still wage in his members, in his mind, he wills to obey God. He wants to obey. His mind is willing, as Paul Paul describes in Romans 7 that war. There's always going to be a war within our members, our flesh, until we're in the ground. But he said, I delight to to obey the law of God in my my inner man. A Christian will care very little about what men think. He cares very little about carnal expediency. He wants to obey God. Show me how to obey God. I want to do what God says. Very often the chief anxiety of the Christian is that he wishes that he was more obedient than he is. It crushes a Christian, not because they're afraid they're going to go to hell, because, but that they wish they offered a better obedience, a better service, a more delightsome obedience. It doesn't enter his mind most of the time whether or not he's saved. His eternal destiny is secure in Christ. Matters of justification are settled. But when it comes to sanctification and conformity to Christ, the soul of a Christian is going to agonize for his entire pilgrimage on this earth because he does not more quickly, more readily, more happily obey his God. And he he gets to the point where he says, I'm ready to be set free so that I can obey without hindrance. How can this be? Philippians 2.13 We know God works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Two sides. God works in you to will. Who wills? You do. 
How? God works in you. God works in you to work. Who works? You do. How? God works in you. God works in you so that you will and you work. What kind of work is this? It's for the good pleasure of God. He does that. He makes us willing. In coming into the realm of the active, effectual power of the Spirit, we're brought not just to do. We're not talking about just outward conformity. We're transformed so that we will to do according to God's good pleasure. So then, in conclusion, what is Christian liberty? Well, it's, it's freedom to experience the blessings of God and to obey God. It's freedom to do what God has commanded regardless of any earthly consequences. It's freedom to give up anything that God has not commanded for the sake of your spiritual growth and the growth of others. Now, now read that back into Romans 14. Read that back into 1 Corinthians, uh, somewhere around the area, neighborhood of 8 to 10. Read that back into those passages where we're asking, well, can I, can I eat the meat sacrificed to idols? Well, if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, you are at perfect liberty to not eat that meat. You can give it up. That's the liberty that we have. It's the freedom to change your schedule to better facilitate sanctification. You are at perfect liberty to get up a little earlier to study God's Word tomorrow. Nobody's going to stop you. There is no law against that. You can do it. You're at, at liberty, or, or this Christian freedom is a freedom to hold temporal things loosely in light of eternal things. That's true liberty. Going back to the first, the first lecture, hearts free to love God, minds free to know God, bodies free to serve God, that's what we will have in the eternal state. And we can experience some of that even now. And anything that competes with that is not liberty. It's bondage. No matter how free it might feel to the flesh, it's not liberty, it's bondage. No matter how closely it might resemble obedience, if we are not increasing in our mental, spiritual, and practical likeness to God, then we are not at liberty to continue down that path. We are at liberty to turn around Get back into obedience to God and walk in that path with Him as we should. That's Christian liberty. So we'll stop there. And if the Lord wills, we'll finish this paragraph next week. Let's pray. We'll stand and sing. And then I've got one announcement to make after we sing. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we ask that You would continue to write its truths upon our hearts. Help us to see the world and our life in it through these, these biblical lenses, the lens of a new creature. To see true liberty and obedience and access to you, Lord. I pray that you would give us a sensitivity to those blessings of access. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for calling us to be your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn number 547.